Welcome to Outside the Music Box. I'm Emma Williams. And I'm Chloe Prendergast. We're both violinists based in the Netherlands, and we're so glad you've joined us today. Each episode of this podcast explores a different piece of music through the eyes of a guest musician. Today's guest is queen of all the bass instruments, Maggie Urquhart, who we've both known for many years through our musical lives here in the Netherlands. She's chosen to bring in Bach's B minor mass. We do our best to define the relevant music terms throughout the chat, but because this is our world and we're human, there will be things that we miss, so please let us know what these are and we will be sure to clarify them in future episodes. Also, quick disclaimer, as we do all our interviews over the internet, we can't always control the connection, unfortunately, and in this one, Maggie sometimes cuts in and out a little bit, but hopefully you get the gist of things. And don't worry about trying to remember the pieces and recordings we talk about. They are in the show notes, along with a link to a Spotify playlist. Thanks for joining us, and enjoy the B minor mass. Bravo. <laughs> wow. I'm so impressed with all your technical stuff. I got Robert to help me with it. I was like, whoa. Yeah. <laughs> we are also yeah. impressed. <laughs> we are also Amazing. very impressed with ourselves. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Thanks so much for joining us. <laughs> You're very welcome. Glad to be here. On this podcast, we like having our guests introduce themselves. So can you start by introducing yourself? Yeah, sure. So I'm Maggie Urquhart. Um, I'm English, but I've been living in Holland for actually most of my life now. I came here to study, to study violoni, because I became interested in early music. Um, I'm living in Rotterdam, and I play the violoni. That's my living. I teach at the Hague Conservatory and the Amsterdam Conservatory, and I give quite a lot of courses. And I'm studying for a PhD at the Office Institute in Ghent, where I'm written to Leiden as well. So I'm in the last year of that. Hopefully I'll get that finished next year. Um, Yay! Yeah. Most of my life is playing the bass, running around, playing the bass. And in this shutdown, I can't do that quite so much, but I'm still trying. No. Yeah. Well, that no, great time for true. PhD finishing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and not. can you define and tell us what a violone is? Yeah, sure. So uh, violone is like an early form of the double bass. So the first instrument, well, the first orchestral instrument I learned was the double bass so that's the biggest of the string instruments um and the early form of that so from renaissance times onward would be the violoni and there were lots of different types so some of them were quite small like a cello size with six strings or five strings um and others were quite big also with six strings or five strings or four strings and there are lots of different tunings from there are about 22 different tunings I've counted through the last wow. hundred years. <laughs> um, in the last century, well, in the 19th century, they were three-stringed, actually, and all played with mm. gut. Some of these instruments had frets and they had wooden tuning pegs. And then this, wow. uh, well, today we play the modern double bass with steel strings. That's quite different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, I mean, we've both seen your place. You basically have, like, a whole level of your house that is just full of <laughs> bass instruments well actually two levels <laughs> yeah two levels I'm, okay i'm married to bass player violin player so there are yeah. two levels of violinism bases yeah between the two of you there's quite a few <laughs> and a lot yeah. of bows a lot of bows like lots of bows, bows everywhere yeah yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah bass player's dream house <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah great um and uh so you've brought us a piece well quite a big piece today yes <laughs> to chat about yeah um but an amazing one um do you want to introduce it for us or yeah um it is a big piece it's, it's some people see this as a formidable piece I mean the early music specialists mm. especially the conductors of early music see this as a high point of their career and the funny thing mm. is here that in Baroque times, there weren't conductors. So this is a funny little right. aside. Maybe we can go into that later. But um, yeah. really, it's, you know, I think the groups and the conductors really approach this with some sort of fear because it's really the high point mm-hmm. of, of 
they would say Western music in a way. Um, but mm-hmm. I love this piece. I've just grown to love it. And um, I think it's a lot more accessible than we sometimes think it might be. There are so many books about yeah. it. So many musicologists have written about it. There's so much mm-hmm. information to find about it. But it's, it's very immediate as well. And the reason yeah. I chose it is that it's, it can speak to you on so many different levels. You don't have to meet a musicologist to appreciate what it's about at all. <laughs> you Not can just all. enjoy the dance, dance movements and, and yeah. the yeah. humanity in it. It's a really beautiful yeah. piece. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And there's so many recordings of it, um, which yeah, you true. also sent us a few, few recordings, many yeah. of them that you were on. Um, and maybe we'll start by just your kind of journey with this piece. Like when when did you first discover it or did you hear it first or did you play it first? When was, when okay. Was that? Yeah, that's. I thought a lot about your question because the first time I got involved with the piece was probably early teens and I can't remember exactly right. when because um, yeah. I began with singing actually. I played piano, percussion, mm. singing, lots of different things and started the bass at 11. And my mum sang in a very good choral society and I used to join her so from about the age of 12 onwards. And we did most of the big oratory so I learned them mm. really from the choir part, which was great. Yeah. Wow. And then that is best way yeah, to <laughs> just inside out. And then uh, yeah. the time that I would really date it to that I really got to know the piece better. And then as a bassist, as a violoni player, was in 1989, uh, yes, uh, with the 18th Century mm. Orchestra. So this is orchestra based in Holland. And we did a wonderful tour, which was based in what was then, well, we were in Western Europe, but then we went into what was then called Eastern Europe. So we went across <laughs> into Poland, into Warsaw, um, yeah. which was a real happening because people came from hundreds of kilometres around to come and hear this historically performed piece. And they were very moved also because Poland is still quite a religious country and they were mm, very moved yeah. on many levels with it there. And we also took it to Moscow, which was also a complete happening, I mean, also for us. And then we came wow. from this, <laughs> from Moscow and went back into the West again. So the concerts that we did um, in the West really um, paid for the ones in the East because we didn't really earn anything from those. So one, one paid no. for the other. But it was an yeah, amazing right. experience yeah. the whole tour. Absolutely. Yeah. Wow. And yeah. how, so how long had you been in the Netherlands at this stage? Um, before going on this tour? Uh, I came over to study. So I'd studied at art college and then I got really, I'd always played music and I thought, okay, I want to, I couldn't choose between the two. And art yeah. is a very lonely life. You're confronted with yourself and yourself and yourself. And I love yeah. being with other people. <laughs> um, yeah. I think with music, it also happens at one moment. So live music, performing music. So, you know, you play a piece then you have to let go and move on to the next thing. And with art, you keep coming back to it and fussing around with it. And I thought, okay, I want a life in music. So I went over to Holland, which was really where early music was happening. I mean, we had Gustav Leonard and we had La Petite Band with Tickers van Kerk. And we had so many wonderful people. Of course, Franz Bruchen, who's my big hero. Mm. And yeah. I was yeah. incredibly fortunate to start playing almost immediately with these people. Um, wow. wow! Yeah, my teacher, Anthony Woodrow, we were having lessons one day, I think in my first year at the conservatory, and he got a phone call, where are you? And he went three shades whiter, and they said, you're supposed to be at a recording of, well, this was the complete oh. Bach cantatas, you know, that uh, Nicholas Harnacourt and Gustav Leonard were doing, and he wasn't there. <laughs> he was a very, very busy man. <laughs> um, anyway, we made an arrangement. He said, are you free tomorrow? So <laughs> then I jumped in. <laughs> Raising, but it was just a yeah, baptism of fire. So I just started mm. playing straight away. Yeah, you just learn on the job. Um, and how how was the kind of feeling in the eighties in the Netherlands? Like, um, I don't know. I mean, yeah, we're total millennials and weren't born yet. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I do find the <laughs> find the eighties a very interesting time to imagine, and especially in Europe. I mean, I'm from Australia, so this you know. Now that I live in Europe, it's fine, but it's always been this kind of mystical, faraway place where <laughs> there was the Cold War and all these things happened. And um, and I just feel like being a musician in the 80s, especially in the Netherlands and then and as on that tour that you were talking about going between the East and the West, I just, yeah, I have no way to imagine that. And I don't know if you have any kind of mm, particular I thoughts think, about I it. I think it was complete, for me, it was a complete paradise. I think many people would see it like that. Yeah. I mean, it was, there was a lot of freedom. Um, 
Mm. Still a bit hippie-ish, so <laughs> suited me yeah. fine. Um, yeah. You know, I I didn't have money. I'd studied already. My parents said that's it. Now you're on your own. So I had to somehow right. make make a living, which is pretty difficult. Uh, so I did mm. lots of odd jobs. I lived in an anti-crack, which is you know anti-squat for the people that don't speak Dutch. So basically, you're living yeah. free, but it's quite a lot of work that you have to put into staying in such a place, which meant yeah. that I could. Um, play whenever I wanted I had the advantage of uh, a place that had a huge gymnasium next to it and I could just go and practice there whenever wow. I wanted so I mean the living situation was so much easier than today and then I yeah. think the way that we played together as students was amazing I mean we put on concerts I think you know quite often every other Sunday or so and we'd just get a buck and wow. dance together with whoever wanted to play and people came from a long way to come and listen to these and they were just kind of happening mm. so mm. it was uh, we just played music from morning till night it was a uh, full full on um, yeah. I think also at that time there was a lot of money in subsidies from the Dutch government, so there were yeah. well really there was a lot of contemporary music, uh, really yeah avant-garde jazz I would call it so not contemporary jazz but really uh, cutting edge jazz and I was involved mm. in some of that as well luckily and um, a lot of contemporary music um, and the early music was really taking off so uh, most of what we did was recording at the time. And that paid extremely well. And also the concert yeah. paid really well. So, yeah, we had a great time. There was also a lot of theatre music. So I remember doing a piece by Louis Anderson that was um, Dr. Nero while I was still a student. And that paid great as well. So I could buy a harpsichord from the profits of that. Wow. Um, by, playing in, <laughs> by playing in the... Living the dream. Yeah, yeah, it was a great time. It was. I was very, very lucky, I think. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's amazing. The people I got to know then are really my colleagues now. So I think it was also a, a, a time that we made friends and really cemented our, our musical friendships. And, yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's so yeah. important. Yeah, yeah. Um, so was the uh, nineteen eighty nine uh, tour was, and then you recorded the B minor mass at the end of that tour. Is that what happened? Or yeah, that was the first recording. Mostly, what we did with the eighteenth century orchestra was to record live concerts. In fact, almost everything we did was recording live concerts. Um, sometimes we couldn't do that, but mostly, most of our recordings were live. So we'd record either. Yeah, two or three concerts generally. Um, yeah. coughing that could that could go or something went wrong. Yeah, and then put that together. Yeah. We would make a we'd have a tour. We'd have a lot of concerts, maybe ten concerts in a row. So a lot of touring, and then um, quite often we'd find we weren't really happy with the results. So we'd come back to it a year later or a couple of months later and try again. And that would be the recording that would work. Mm, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. with a little bit of space. Yeah, with little space, because quite often when you paint yeah. these, you have one impression. You come back to it and it's deepened in some way and you can approach it in a different yeah. way. And I think yeah. we really wanted that live feeling that it was a spontaneous mm. happening. Yeah, well, yeah I was noticing that um, when we, we kind of listened to the, well, it sort of came out in 1990, but that, that first recording and then the 2010 version. Mm -hmm. um, and I just kind of... Yeah, it struck me the kind of rawness and the mm. daringness of the the earlier recording that you don't mm. really hear so much in the later the later version. Mm. Um, I mean, yeah. they're both amazing, but um, I really could feel that kind of yeah daringness of of how people were approaching the music as they were playing mm -hmm. it through that recording. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if you felt. I guess you felt that as well when you were doing it. Yeah, I did. Yeah. Yeah, they were always, each concert was different. And I think the way that France mm. conducted each concert was different. And I remember very strongly that what we were doing, yeah, it was almost as though we were getting a little bit too free and easy in the East Block concert. Mm. It was such a high happening. So when we got yeah. back to the West, then somehow France pulled the reins in and he wanted to just tighten everything up. It was quite a shock, <laughs> quite a musical yeah, shock. Interesting. Uh, yeah. yeah, interesting. We had to tighten the whole thing up again. Yeah. Wow. Do you have any specific memories of anything that happened on that tour that was particularly memorable? Oh, heavens, a lot. <laughs> I mean, I was, yeah. uh, you know, I had my first child then, so that's your that's your colleague, Isabel. <laughs> that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she was a seven-month-old baby. And 
people weren't really traveling around with seven-month-old babies into Moscow. Um, <laughs> right. Yeah. I, I, I was very lucky that Luce Van Dahl had taken her son on tour, so this this was okay. But I was having to make it up as I went along, so I was asking for babysitters. Yeah. And I remember sitting in Moscow, we had a big meal after one of the concerts, and I put her in the crib underneath the portable crib, underneath the table. And when the Russian ladies saw this, they were so horrified. I mean, they <gasps> at that time, at least, they didn't take their children, their babies outside. Oh, wow. And then after they got over the horror, then they said, well, we'll offer you, you know, 10,000 rubles for her. And I said, no, sorry, she's not for sale. It was a joke. But it was... <laughs> yeah, it could have been a very different life story for Poise. <laughs> she and I would not be playing in a quartet together now. <laughs> Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, and I think also, you know, we have lots of memories from that. I mean, you know, it was quite difficult even with food in Moscow. You know, the the value of money could suddenly drop in an instant, and I think this is still the same today. So basically we were given, you know, meals. We couldn't just pop out and buy things. So there wasn't really a lot of fresh food at all. Mm. Um, We were glad of these good meals that they gave us. And there were a lot of rules. I mean, you notice that everybody had work, but the work could be quite minimal. So at one point I wanted to get onto the stage to tune up the bass and I wasn't allowed to because the person whose job it was to stop people going on the stage wouldn't allow me on. So, I mean, this is quite unthinkable now. (laughs) But um, you had to respect that that was somebody's job and you had to do what they wanted. So, yeah. I mean, I ran into that in China last year a little bit as well, Mm. that there were just a lot of people with a lot of very specific jobs Mm. that were done very uh, seriously. Mm. Mm. Yeah. The same thing with like the amount of piano movers. (laughs) And yeah, Yeah. yes, people who were like, now is not the time that you can go on stage and I have to stand here and tell you that. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So maybe we could go through a bit of the piece as well. I mean, it's such, yeah, it's such a big piece. Do you have a particular place that you like sort of starting when you when you delve back into it or? Oh, yeah, we could start in the middle. I mean, um, okay. <laughs> yeah, you know, there's so many beautiful things because I think, you know, he goes from this um, very solemn, serious and archaic way of writing sometimes into something that's so bright yep. and new for his time. And yeah, I really yeah. love that. And, um, you know, if you go from one, one part that I love a lot in the credo, so that's the second major part of the work. Mm-hmm. And it's a credo, it's symbolum nisenum. And it's, you know, I love this part for the baseline because it has this, what well, I call it a walking pilgrim's line. You can imagine some pilgrims mm. saying, I believe in God. And they're just walking along and they're walking along and they're not looking right and left. They just keep going. And that's the baseline. Yeah. And then above it, you have this, you know, almost Gregorian idea from the tenors. <laughs> So that's quite early. Um, and then it sort of turns halfway through also into a more into his contemporary time, into a Baroque piece again. Um, mm. But I just love that bass line. It doesn't look left or right. Mm. It just keeps mm-hmm. going. Almost, I'm not going to say it's a jazz bass line, but it, it, it's a foundation for the whole thing. It's really yeah. beautiful. Well, we wouldn't have jazz without Bach, so. <laughs> you know. True. Yeah. And I think it's also, you know, it's, it, maybe you could see this as difficult work because it is a religious work and Bach was working for the Lutheran Church, but I think it's really just a very human piece. You can relate on lots mm. of terms. Um, yeah. And I think this as well, it's like, you know, we can get distracted left and right by all sorts of things that are going on, maybe especially at the moment. Or we can just say, mm. I'm doing my thing, I'm getting on with it and take it or leave it. <laughs> and somehow to me that symbolises yeah this baseline so I love it wow nice and we were because we're both violinists we were talking about this and just wondering what does it feel like to be that foundation of an orchestra all of the time Mm. and playing those bass lines it's fantastic I love it (laughs) (laughs) we're so jealous (laughs) we we imagine it must be amazing yeah Yeah. it's sort of I mean playing the bass it's a bit like being on a lookout post you know you're quite often at the back of the orchestra so you can observe everything you're like the weatherman you can see the storms approaching and leaving and the sun coming out and and you have to lay down it's a very physical instrument so you feel these low vibrations and if you get that resonance going which is really for me a big part of baroque playing if you get the resonance going you set up 
a foundation that other people can play into and it enhances their sound and it brings sort of unity into the whole piece, which is really beautiful, I think. Uh, yeah. um, so in a way, the part doesn't seem very important and in a way it is very important because if you do it the right way, you bring people together and you can add energy or you can calm things down without really getting in the way, hopefully. So it, it, it adds to the mood or it adds to the structure. So, and we have to see things yeah. in, a, in a big way. I think we're like the lorry drivers. You know, you can't make a sudden movement. You can't suddenly yeah, say, whoa, this is going too slow. I'm going to do that. You can't do that. Yeah. <laughs> it would be like driving a lorry around the corner too fast. It would be disastrous. So you, you have to go yeah. slowly and look ahead and think about the big structure. And I just think that's really fun. It's a bit like being, maybe like being the conductor that you have to not keep an eye on everything. So we're listening to the upper voices and really trying to respond to that and anticipate what's going on. And at the same time, laying down feet and laying down a foundation. Actually, what type of base is used for for this mass? Is it just a? Oh, wow, that's a very okay, good maybe question. That's... <laughs> that's too complicated. You know, no, it's not complicated. It's just it's a funny thing that's built up. I mean, one of the reasons I came to Holland was because I loved the early music movement that was going on. So we were trying to look at things in a historical way. So historically informed performance, uh, HIP for short, and. You know, I've been doing this for a long time now. <laughs> and then I realized a few years ago that actually I don't really know what sort of bass was used for Bach's music. I just don't know it. Mm. And I looked around what's been written about this. And, you know, some wonderful things. Lawrence Dreyfus has written a beautiful book 30 years ago called uh, The Bach's Continual Line, which is still, you know, a super book. It's very relevant. Um, but we don't actually know what the bass was that Bach used. We don't know what octave it was played at even. <laughs> we don't know how many strings it had. We don't really know what size it was. Um, so yeah, the basses I'm using, I, the one I played on the first tour in 89 was actually an old English bass. And I bought that when I was still a teenager. It belonged to my first teacher. And he was in his 80s when I started having lessons. And he, wow. <laughs> I love this bass. He'd made a cover for it, made out of an old army tent. So... <laughs> holding together and I later made a cover for it made out of two old raincoats when the sleeves was covering the neck oh my gosh <laughs> it's kind oh. of a, a bass that's traveled with me all around the world and I love it very much I would call it more romantic bass so it probably wasn't the right instrument mm. um mm. and the second one I did with a Galliano a Johannes Galliano and I actually had Viennese tuning on this and frets which is also completely the wrong um <laughs> tuning because <laughs> this should be for classical music as Maggie was just talking about, there were many different types of basses used throughout the last few hundred years. Many of the earlier basses used frets, like a guitar, and gut strings made from beef or sheep gut. There were also many ways to tune each of the strings, which changes the resonance of the instrument. Some basses were tuned to a lower pitch, which we call 16 foot, and some were tuned a whole octave higher, which we call 8 foot. These technical factors of the instrument changed depending on the year and the country in which the music was written. Maggie just talked about using two wrong types of basses. One of them was for the classical period, which was roughly the second half of the 18th century, and the other was for the romantic period, which was basically the 19th century. As Bach's B minor mass was finished in 1749, naturally a different type of bass was used for the performance of this piece. But unfortunately, we don't exactly know what this bass was like. And that isn't really the right instrument at all. But maybe it would be something in between these two instruments. It would probably be a largish bass uh, in Leipzig, where Bach finished the B minor mass. Um, it might have had four or five or six strings. We don't really know. I think it was at a 16 foot, but other think, people think differently. Um, <laughs> it would have had gut strings. Yeah, but to be honest, we don't know what it was. So I, I'm making up as I go along. And what I'm doing now is I, I started researching what the bass would have been because, or the violoni would have been, because I was so interested. And I've been at this for four years. I still don't definitely know. <laughs> wow. Wow. So, um, 
Shall I tell you a little bit more about that? Are you interested? Or... Yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> I think this changed during Bach's lifetime. So, you know, the B minor mass is maybe a good parallel here because he worked on this piece for at least 30 years. He started mm-hmm. on the basis of it in Weimar, where he was a young man. And probably the violoni he was using at that time was what we'd call eight foot, so in the cello, cello register, and uh, probably a six-stringed instrument. And it would have been played up in the court chapel, so about four stories up in a, on a very thin parapet, actually a metre and a half wide, so it was be great for social distancing, um, with the <laughs> organ. And the sound would have come down from this tower, down through the middle, um, down to the congregation listening below, as though the sound was coming from heaven. So it was really... <sighs> special mystical kind of sound Um, and unfortunately that tower burnt down later so we don't know exactly what it was like but we can reconstruct Mm. um, the kind of sound apparently people who went to listen there said the sound was very clear and beautiful so they speak about it in special terms but by the time you get to Leipzig we think that again the church has been changed a lot but we think that the bass sound didn't um, uh, projects terribly well and Bach loved a lot of bass sound so probably he was using a large double bass and a large violoni which to help mm-hmm. to project more bass sound um, yeah yeah and these what we forget now as well we, we <laughs> in the in the historical performance practice we have to go on tour so we take small organs with us which we can travel with yeah. but in Bach's time mostly he was using the big church organs so the players would have been up in the organ loft. So actually standing and playing a completely different way. The bass player would have been maybe looking over the shoulder of the organ player up in the loft. And the other players would have been in a long line, both sides um, of the organ, uh, projecting the sound across the balcony. So you can imagine it would have resonated in a completely different way than what we're used to now. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Have there been many reconstructions of that? sort of tried out? No, we've been doing this for about 10 years with a group called Musica Amphion, which is in Holland, and we've gone to Bach's churches, and it's a really different sound. So we're we're going to do some more experiments with this in, with the students in The Hague in October, if you're listening, so please come and listen. Hey, cool. cool. Yeah. How does it feel to play up in an organ loft? Oh, it's amazing. (laughs) It's beautiful. (laughs) Yeah, and the sound is different. You'd think that a church organ would obliterate everything, and actually, funny enough, it doesn't. I mean, the... Yeah, it's a it's a very beautiful experience because you feel part of the whole resonance of the organ. And it's it's these lofts were made of wood, so the whole thing is vibrating. Uh, I mean, the organ is metal, obviously, but you feel this huge vibration, and you you feel the energy of this organ. And then you have the clarity of the singers and of the of the instrumental players around you. Um, it's a very different experience. It's very very beautiful. Yeah. yeah, and try like being so high up with like a wooden floor below you. That would change things too. There's like so much hollow space below you in a way that yeah we don't have when we stand on the ground, yeah. which is what we're doing most of the time. Yeah, exactly, everything resonates. And it's funny the first time that we did one of these recordings in the Bach Church, uh, the recording engineer hung the microphones up near to the balcony. And then we realized, actually, mm. after a couple of days recording, this wasn't the right place. And he changed the whole thing and moved them down to the floor at the back of the church. So that's where people would have been listening. And so I think, yeah, that when these churches were made and when the organs were positioned, they were thinking about the effect acoustically within the space. And this is something we don't have the luxury to do today. We're playing a modern concert hall, which has a completely different way of resonating with the yeah, instruments. Exactly. Yeah. I would love to go back to the piece a little bit you said that you feel like it's a really human piece Mm. what do you think it is that makes it specifically very human oh that's an interesting question um you know I think I think that Bach I don't know what I read about him we get lots of different impressions I think he's a very human person I mean he had lots of children he he I mean if we read his letters they come across a little bit stuffy sometimes but he had specific jobs do he had to earn money and support his musicians and his family and um and I think what I love about this piece is that he can go from archaic style so at the beginning of the if you think of the Kyrie it said three times at the beginning it's very solemn it's very impressive and he goes into this big fugue, which is very archaic but then he'll go into a D major dance-like uh, very earthly kind of um situation straight afterwards Throughout this work, Bach writes in cycles of three main styles. First, he writes in what we call the high Baroque style, which is sometimes slow and solemn, and other times a lively dance, like in this Osanna. 
The second style is the newer Galant style with soloists singing more simple melodies, like in this Criste Eleison duet. And the last is a more ancient style, often written as a fugue where each voice enters at different times with the same melodic material, like the second version of the Kyrie. Besides being a wonderful piece to listen to, Bach really shows his mastery of each of these styles throughout the work. So he contrasts actually all the way through the whole piece, um, very solemn and beautiful and, I would say, mystical ideas. And then he suddenly puts something very earthy into it that you can relate to, a 6-8, a sort of Italian, you know, a fashionable rhythm of the time, a Neapolitan duet for two sopranos, because he thought that would be a nice thing to do to impress the, the public at Dresden. So he's he's playing around with it. I mean, even though he's using pieces that he's worked on maybe over 30 years, he's still trying to, um, yeah, he's, can we say showing off? I don't know. He's trying to impress people. Um, so there's that element of his, yeah, of just having fun, of trying to impress, but also of bringing across a message which is so beautiful. I mean, you know, you think when the Holy Spirit comes to the Virgin Mary, it's such a beautiful moment. And it's so contemplative. He just puts a very, um, just this throbbing bass line in. And you can imagine with his high sopranos, you can just imagine this moment where the spiritual meets the earthly. And I think that's just a very human moment. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and I think how he can change things as well. So he can start off with quite a solemn fugue and then turn it into something very yeah. joyful at the end. So a very high baroque with trumpets and timpani. So you, you, yeah. you yeah. feel emotion. It's something you feel in your gut. It's not an intellectual experience. It's just a, mm -mm. It's impressive yeah. and, and beautiful. And <laughs> yeah. yeah. And he just he puts them in at exactly the right moment. Often yeah. you're sort of building gradually, gradually, gradually building with the different textures of the strings and, and whatever. And then finally the brass and the timpani come in and mm. it all just sort of like, it's like a big firework. Yeah, <laughs> um, exactly. We just talked about a couple of different ways the trumpets and timpani are used throughout this work. Here's an example of a fugue that builds and builds until the trumpets and timpani come in. Here's an example of the trumpets and timpani creating fireworks in the Et Resurrexit movement. Yeah, or it does it the opposite direction. Like, I think what maybe my favorite part of the whole piece is when the choir, like the orchestra is gone and the choir does the expecto at expecto and it like sort of dissolves and it's dissolving and you're like, what is happening? And then it explodes with the whole orchestra coming in and the timpani and the trumpets. <laughs> I love yeah. that moment. Yeah. <laughs> this is maybe embarrassing to admit, but this bit also always makes me think of Harry Potter because of expecto patronum.
we'll get to like the Sanctus where it's these kind of like huge rolling waves with the the strings going over and over again with these triplets. He then goes through kind of the cycle of fifths under. So the strings are just kind of going, well, at least the violins are like dee 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 dee. And then the basses are like, we're going to go through our little <laughs> sequence for you under this. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. These are so amazing. I mean, I love these these huge stepping, you know, octaves that the bass has as well. Mm. And it's something I think also that Franz did so beautifully because he I don't know how he did it. He could somehow conjure up angels and seraphims and you know, just from nowhere. And we'd be sitting there with our mouths open and we could just imagine these flapping wings coming around. And it just it, wow. it just gave you this, it gave you yeah, your backbone, you'd feel these little tingles on your back. And um you can just feel that there's sort of difference between the bass line which is huge stepping you know uh, octaves which are you know rhetorically speaking they're very strong intervals anyway just stepping through and this beautiful sort of spiritual line involved it's really amazing I think. Mm. yeah, yeah. do you have a, a favorite part maggie Oh, oh I've got so too many. hard a question. You know, I went through it and I started putting stars on my favorite parts, and I've got yeah. an awful lot of stars. Yes. <laughs> I mean, as a bass player, I mean the the quonium. So the quonium, it's the yeah, it's basically honouring God on His throne. I mean, I guess you could see it that way. And I think there are lots of different ways of seeing this because you have two bassoons playing individual lines. You have bass voice. You have the organ, and then violoni are the sixteen foot. Um, and it's funny because I was reading up about some what, how different writers think about this. And John Elliott Garner thinks that this is a little bit grotesque and Bach must have been having a bit of a joke here. And I'm thinking, mm. yeah, but he knew Selenka in Dresden and Selenka's a bass player and the bassoons were very beautiful mm. instruments. And I, I see it a very different way. And, you know, how France would do it, that it was a very noble and, yeah, royal situation. Again, he'd sort of bring in some mm. seraph here because I think he thought they should be flying around the throne and he sort of something <laughs> very splendid and beautiful and I love it when you have the horn that, that coming in I mean yeah the voice and the horn it's just a magical moment huh? so you have mm. the contact as soon as the double bass or violoni and the and the organ who are giving us foundation but also playing part of the of the melodic line and then the the horn which comes in which is really special it's um you can also see the sort of angelic instruments, the heavenly instrument. You see it depicted a lot, don't you, on on the mm. frescoes mm. and so on. I yeah. think it's very stately. So I, I don't know. I found this very interesting because it's one of my favourite parts. I find it quite challenging to make it work, and um, sure. I just think it's miraculous in a way that to use all these low instruments to give an idea of splendour and majesty. You know, it's beautiful. Mm. I've got so many stars here. I don't. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah. Asking for peace. I mean, so you can kind of suddenly go from a very beautiful, you know, a very or very joyful part, then asking for peace, asking for peace in our time, and he finishes the whole, the whole uh, be my mass also asking for peace. I mean, that's so relevant to us now, isn't it? Yeah, it's, yeah, really is. Yeah, absolutely. And I do find that last movement incredibly human as well. Yeah like the way that everybody comes together and there is that, that yeah, prayer for peace. Yes. Mm. Yeah. I also just, for some reason, feel like I'm in a warm bath when I'm listening to that last Amen. <laughs> it's quite comforting. I also, one of my other favourites is the Agnus Day. It's very sort of, yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. it's so haunting um, and just really hard for the violins. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Very yeah. finickety. <laughs> but he uses a very simple bass line for that. Um, yeah. And, yeah, I, how does it feel to then kind of 
because you don't you don't want to do too much as a bass player to to kind of overpower what's you know this kind of pure and simple still static kind of movement but then you also still need to give the foundations must be an interesting balance to try to keep when you're playing that yeah that's quite difficult also for the timing because it's just interjections and you have to keep it quite steady in a way and not do too much with it quite often you just have to take your courage in both hands it's a bit like being a trumpeter maybe (laughs) maybe less risky yeah Yeah. you just have to do something and see if it works I would love to go back to the, so you recorded this in 1989 Mm -hmm. after this tour that you'd had, and then you recorded it again with the same orchestra, a different choir Mm -hmm. in 2010. Mm -hmm. Is it 2010? Uh, Oh, nine, I think. And then it came out. Oh, nine. It came out in 2010. And what was that experience like recording it 20 years later? Oh, it was quite different. And we had, yeah, it's a different choir as well. So the Karma Chorus. Yeah. Amsterdam so quite different approach in a way um, and it's also that France changed quite a lot and with the, with the chamber choir he was yeah. very strict I remember also with the soloist we had superb soloists for that first tour really superb and he was so strict with everyone it was it was very difficult oh. and I think he'd mellowed out a little bit by the time we got to, to uh, 2010 29 and yeah. he let us go a little bit more and what I hear is a bit more jazziness in the whole thing it's got a, it's a little bit more swaggering somehow and um, <laughs> I think you can also hear that we know the piece inside out. We could play it by then. Yeah, I, I hear it as being very joyful. It's sort of like we were ha- mm. having fun with a lot of things because we knew it well and we could, we could really give our all. And I think the idea of coming back to Warsaw, which was opening up then, was really a beautiful experience. I mean, when we first went, you know, the word that comes to mind is grey. It was grey. People weren't having a good time a lot of the time. And it's a very emotional place for us because uh, so my husband Robert's father came from Warsaw and had to leave. So we've been following how... How the city's changed, and over the years, it's it's changed so much. We've been going back, yeah, since then. I think the last seventeen years, we've been going up to the Warsaw Festival, and we see it opening up, and people wearing bright clothes, and you know, different restaurants coming in, and you know, people showing off, walking down the main streets, and so on. And that sounds like it would have been when Robert's father was alive that they were they yeah. were having fun, enjoying themselves, and it's good to see it opening up again. So we saw this sort of process happening. Uh, so twenty years after our first uh, recording that there was, um, yeah, people were having more fun. And I think maybe you can hear that on the recording as well. Yeah. yeah. Did it feel sort of like a homecoming in yes, some ways? Yes, it did, definitely, it yeah. 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 And each time we go, back, we go back for the Chopin Festival every uh, August, beginning of September. Yeah, yeah it's nice. really a homecoming. It feels like our place. So, yeah. yeah, that's really, that's yeah, that's amazing. really special. Yeah. Mm. Cool. How many times have you recorded it? Do you remember? Oh, in total, no, not so very many. I've done it with Herve, which was very beautiful. We recorded that in Berlin. And I love his approach to Herve. I love his approach to Bach. I think he's a master for Bach. And funny enough, this was this was such a nice project to do because I went back and listened. Usually I'm playing music and I don't listen to music very much anymore. And it's just lovely mm. to listen to it. And mm. funny, the memories I have of playing that recording with Philip Herve and doing that tour with him, it somehow doesn't come through to me in the actual recording. I found it more distant. Hmm. What do you think makes that um, that difference happen where it feels so different to play it with Herveche, like on stage and then listening back? Like what, where is that disconnect, Oof, do you think? That's a really good question. You know, I've been thinking about that a lot since yesterday because I didn't realise how different that experience was. Um, yeah. Yeah, what is it? I think, you know, because it's our profession, we're very involved at many different levels with actually playing. And maybe it's like being a footballer or something. You're busy with the game in a certain way, which maybe an audience, you know, an audience or people in the stadium are just not busy with it. They're they're watching Mm -hmm. where that ball's going, who's going to take the next shot. And maybe, you know, a football team's thinking about, "Hmm, you know, how's he playing today? How am I going to work with him? And so we're busy with lots of other levels of interaction uh, on the stage which maybe an audience isn't busy with. Yeah, yeah, maybe. I don't know. I'd love to, Have you got ideas? I'd, I'm very puzzled about it, actually. I was surprised what yeah. a big difference it was. 
I don't know that I haven't, yeah, I haven't thought about it before because I guess I haven't had the experience of really feeling very connected in a real thing and then having that recorded and then going and listening later. Like, I don't know if I've had that experience, but I do have the experience of, I mean, I guess we've all had the experience of remembering how something felt to play and then listening to a recording of it later and being like, oh, that's not what I remember. <laughs> yeah. Or it happened the other way. I could be struggling with a piece. At least I've had this. I really don't feel good about it. And then I hear it. It's like, oh, actually. Yeah. That was that's fine. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 I don't know. I mean, there is something about how you're physically feeling that doesn't always translate to the way it comes out sounding. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, it's, it's also that we get into a certain flow on the stage that we're in a piece and it has its own journey. And that's quite a, quite a big experience, I think. Uh, I don't know about you, but at the end of a piece, I'm usually totally exhausted. I've gone through a whole oh, process. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But I've also had it that where, like, you know, one half of the orchestra will feel something and another half of an orchestra yeah. or an ensemble. Yeah. You will have different experiences within the same ensemble. I mean, it, it is interesting yeah. that that can be so extreme as well yeah that contrast yeah or even with a stand part that you can have loved a yeah. the stand part and had a really bad evening and you're yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah but i guess that's that is true. the beauty of live performance yeah yeah but yeah i guess it just shows that bach's writing can just be so differently interpreted and and mean mm. so many different things um depending on how you how you take it in i mean it's yeah, or it or it speaks so deeply to our human experience that for everyone it can be deep, whatever mm. kind of religion or or whatever way you see the world, mm. it can still touch you in 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 its own way because it's genius. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah, and beautiful and human, I guess. Yeah, 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 because it's beautifully mm. constructed music. I mean, contrapuntally mm. and. It, yeah so much genius in it but you don't hear that when you're necessarily when you're listening you experience it as a piece of music exactly yeah yeah and that's yeah that is the genius of it you're not really sort of going oh that's very fun that that fits in all these rules and (laughs) that you're just like this is great music (laughs) yeah yeah um um well I feel like we could continue to talk about this piece with you for a very long time, but we do have to sort of start wrapping it up. And we have one final question that we ask all of our guests. Um, and that is, is there a piece from another instrument's repertoire that you are jealous of? A piece from another instrument's repertoire. Ooh, yeah, I heard your pod- your first podcast with Dominic. I was like, yeah, that's a good question. You know, in a way not, because I just love play violoni. I wouldn't want to play something else. <laughs> you know, if, if I had to play something else, I think it would be the bagpipes. <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> I think that would be the Scottish bagpipes, and I'd be walking out in gray, probably driving rain out on my own, you know, marching across some heather somewhere, and it'd just mm-hmm. gray and dismal, and I'd be feeling great playing these amazingly loud instrument I think I'd love that but you know I thought well how how would that fit as a repertoire I mean you have musettes which are the French version of these bagpipes yeah I love those too and um yes I've had so many beautiful moments when we've been playing Rameau with France that I just found so magical and there's one time in Amsterdam sorry in Edinburgh and he just pointed a bony finger at the musetta player who had to walk on. And, you know, our hearts just stopped. It was just a magic moment. And I just thought, oh, I would have been loved to play that musetta at that moment and walk on playing that musetta. It just wails, you know. It speaks yeah. from your heart. Yeah. So, Do you yeah. remember what piece that was? I can't remember what we were doing. I was thinking there's there are two musettas in Nice, the suite from Nice. Mm-hmm. And there's one at the end of that which is very beautiful because it just has a drone from the, it's, I think it's number 12 from Nice from the suite, mm-hmm. which has the drone, a very low drone from the basses. And then the musetta comes in wailing above it and the violins mm. join. I think it's so great. It's very earthy yeah. and it's otherworldly as, at the same time. Yeah, amazing. Um, and what is the best way for people to get um, in touch with you or to um, support you, um, like to get your recordings or... Well, the recordings, I've talked a lot about those. And we have lots of, I love these recordings. Um, so if you just go to the orchestra website, so orchestra of the 18th century, 
then you'll yeah. see everything on there, the tours we've had, and there's a shop, and you can order directly from them. So for the the recording yeah. I'm talking about, it's, it's not even expensive. You can get the one from 2010 yeah. that was put out in 2010. Yeah. And, you know, all of these things you can Great. see online. And if you just want to access really easily, I didn't talk about the, the All of Bach, um, mm. which is fabulous. So every Friday, something from Bach is put online by the Netherlands Bach for anything. So you could see the on this one, to the the B minor mass also online from the beautiful performance they did with your song. Mm. Yeah, yeah, good. Uh, that was a really good point to make about Olive Bach because yeah. they do have really beautiful, high-quality mm. videos mm. and yeah. um, recordings mm. of his music. Yeah, all of it, eventually. Great. <laughs> all yeah. all it of it, eventually. Yeah, there's a lot to get through. Um, well, thank you so much for having a chat with us today. Thank you, just so thank you so much. I've enjoyed this so much. It was a really nice project to get involved with because I realised I don't listen to music enough. I'm usually playing it yeah. all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you very much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, thank, thank you. you. <laughs> so much for tuning in to Outside the Music Box. We hope you enjoyed our chat with Maggie Urquhart. If so, please rate and review this podcast. It really makes a difference in the algorithm and helps our visibility. We'd also love to hear from you. If you have any questions or want to share music that you love, you can write to us at concerts.musicbox at gmail.com or on Facebook and Instagram at musicboxconcerts. In the show notes, we've included links to two Spotify playlists, one for the main pieces we discuss, and another for the other pieces we chat about. However, we really encourage you to purchase music in order to support the artists. The best way to support Maggie is going to the Orchestra of the 18th Century website, which we've also linked in the show notes. See you next time outside the music box. Mm-hmm.